0: My name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's a joy for me to be with you guys this morning and uh, share the word. We're going to start a new series this morning, so we're going to talk about money, which is everyone's favorite topic at the church, right? Unfortunately, in the world that we live in, and maybe in the church and the world, the the, the we, we've earned a little bit of a bad reputation when it comes to talking about money. Now, I don't mean us in particular. I mean, the church at large, unfortunately, has earned a reputation where if you are new here today and you go, oh, of course, they're going to talk about money, I just want you to know that if you have been around here for any length of time, you would know that this is not a topic that we often engage. Um, In fact, Neil was in the last service and he was sitting right there and I was looking at Neil, our administrative pastor, for over 20 years, who just recently retired, by the way, which congratulations to Neil. Yeah, you can... He deserves a hand clap, for sure, all right? Um, If we had time, we'd do a whole standing ovation and all that stuff, but that's taking away from my time, so just cool it, okay? All right, so, but, uh, I lost my train of thought. I don't even know what I was talking about anymore. So, we don't talk about money a whole lot. Thank you. I appreciate that, Brian. Um, we don't talk about money a whole lot. In fact, we don't pass a plate. You're not gonna have a a pastor standing up here with an an impassioned plea that you need to give your money because we need it and and all all that kind of stuff. That is just not who we are. We don't believe that's what the Bible represents. That is not what scripture teaches. Um, And we don't even really pass a plate. We have a a box in the back that you can can give, just like Jeremy mentioned, you can give online. Um, And we trust in the sovereignty of God to graciously and kindly provide for us through your graciousness and generosity by the spirit of God. And so we're really, really thankful for that. But what we recognize too is that Jesus talks about money a lot. So it would not be okay for us to go, hey, we are committed to teaching the Bible. We are committed to following the instruction of the Bible if we did not take times like this where we said, hey, we're going to do a four-week series on money. And so we're going to do a four-week series through Luke chapter 12. And so if you have your Bible, you can start to open there. But a four-week series through Luke chapter 12 on money. And it's not, this is not a pragmatic series where we talk about financial principles or, or habits or, or things like that, that that would help you that, that way. We have a class um, for that that we actually just finished one in November and we'll be starting another one. Uh, coming up here in the spring, and so if that's something you're interested in, you could be on the lookout for that. It'll be called um, Financial Freedom, and, and it really is about applying the principles of Scripture to things like budgeting and dealing with debt and all that kind of stuff. That's not what this series is about. It's not t- about telling you what to do with your money. It's about our relationship with money. It's about God's view on money, some of the warnings that he has about money, and the way that it should change the way that we behave and act when we think and talk about money. So as we get into this series, I just want to mention a couple things. The first is this. I was thinking about the communication of this and talking about money and how to deal with it and everything. And I realized I'm going to use the phrase, your money, our money, my money, all all those kinds of phrases a lot. And it's going to be easier to say that. Then to stop every time I want to reference the money that you have and say, the money that God actually owns that he bestowed upon you to manage for him that you then can give back to him. Rather, I'm just going to say your money. But know this, that we do teach, we, we love the word of God. And the word of God makes it really, really clear in Psalm 24:1, in Psalm 50, in Job 41. Everything belongs to God. Everything Amen, I love that, amen. Everything belongs to God. We start from there. We start from there that everything belongs to God and so there is never going to be a moment in this series where I might say your money, our money, my money, whatever, where I am not recognizing that it absolutely belongs to God. It's his. It would just get very laborious if I had to stop and caveat that every time that I was talking about the money that God had given you to manage. So understand that from the outset. The other thing, I was thinking about this section right here when I was studying, the the crew of young people, I love you guys, you guys are awesome, and and I know there's young people elsewhere too, but like this is a crew that has been very consistent over here that I've been encouraged by, Um, and I was thinking like we start talking about these adult topics like money, and sometimes if we're a junior high or high school student or maybe you're a young adult, you're just getting into adulthood, you just got your first real job, you start to think, oh, that's something for older people to think about. I just want to encourage you, it is not. Laying the proper foundation on your relationship with money, how to view money, how to care for money, is something I wish I had done when I was way younger than I had. Your life will be better. Your life will be easier. You will be, have the opportunity to be more glorifying to God by laying this foundation now before God has ever even given you any real money to deal with. But you're laying the foundation of, my, how will I relate to money? How will I have a relationship with money? And I, I can tell you this for sure. There are people all over this room who are older who have made tons of mistakes in their relationship with money that could tell you that exact same principle is true. So I just want to encourage you, this is for all of us, okay, as we get into it. All right, let's get into it. Uh, Luke chapter 12, We'll take a second. We'll read through the passage, um, and as we do, let me kind of set the scene here. In the beginning of Luke chapter 12, we're given this kind of unique picture of of one of the ways that God uh, or Jesus was teaching. We've seen places where large crowds have gathered and Jesus is standing on a hillside and teaching to them, but what it actually says in the beginning of Luke chapter 12 is that thousands of people had gathered together to the point that they were like kind of trampling on each other. So there was this kind of... maybe almost an unruly crowd, and they they weren't, they were not angry. They were there because they were so zealous to hear what Jesus had to say. They were following him around. Thousands of people had gathered. They're kind of locked in there, and it says that Jesus began to speak to his disciples. So he didn't address the whole crowd. There's thousands of people around, and Jesus is letting them in on kind of a session With his disciples. And he begins in the beginning of Luke chapter 12, and he really starts to talk about some really kind of difficult things to to talk through and, and concepts. And then a guy just kind of interrupts him, and that's where we're going to jump into the story in verse 13. In verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? So Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's talking about some stuff. And a guy says, Hey, teacher, tell my brother to give me more of the inheritance. And, he, and then Jesus' response is, Who made me a judge over that? So a couple things to understand. We don't know exactly who this man is, and we don't know exactly what the situation is. It could have been that they got an inheritance, and he didn't feel like he got a fair shake, and so he feels like his brother should give him more of the inheritance. Maybe he's just being greedy, and he just wants more than he got. Or it could be that he's the younger brother and the older brother got all of the inheritance, which was sometimes something that happened in that day and age. Either way, he's coming to Jesus and you're going, well, this feels kind of random. It's not as random as you think because in that day, there weren't really civil courts. And so if you had a dispute like this, you would go to the religious leaders, the teachers, the rabbis, the Sanhedrin, and you would ask them to settle this dispute for you. But Jesus' response to him is this. I'm not that kind of teacher. Uh, Who made me a judge or an arbitrator over a situation like this? Other places in the Gospels, other places in Jesus' teaching, he clearly says that he's a judge. So there might be some confusion there. Like the guy's going, well, hold on a second. You said that you're a judge. What what do you mean? Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not that kind of judge. I'm not here to settle your petty disputes. I'm not here to get you a little bit more inheritance. I'm not here to to worry about those things. When I say that I'm a judge, when I say that I came to divide, what I'm talking about is your very soul. What I'm talking about is the eternal resting place of your soul. When I say that I am a judge and the message that I'm bringing is a judge, it means that if you accept what I'm saying, your soul will be saved. And if you do not accept what I'm saying, your soul will be damned to hell for eternity. That's a much bigger thing than what this guy is worrying about. And because that is what Jesus is the judge of, because that's what he's bringing, he turns this whole situation to a lesson on that. And he moves on in verse 15. So the guy has said, hey, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Jesus says, no, I'm not that kind of judge. And he said to them, Jesus is now saying to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. And so think about this. He already had barns that were full of crops, but he had more crops. So he says, I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns, and I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, I want you to listen to this verse, verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What does verse 19 sound like? What does that sound like to you? I asked the 9.30 and they kind of mumbled. And mm. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna tell you this, 10.30 is my service. This is the service that I go to. We sit in this service. But I will say, you could up your game a little bit in the participation. The 9.30, see that was perfect, that was great. You laugh at yourselves, so I like that. The 9.30 at least mumbles and pretends like they're saying something. You just kind of give us the answer, right? So let's, let's try this. And your answers are great. They mumbled around and they said some things that weren't right. That was the answer I was looking for. This is American retirement, right? This is the dream. The, the dream is that I get to a place where I go, You have ample goods laid up. For many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry. Maybe some of you are in that season of life right now. Good for you. That's great. What was shocking to me was that's what I felt like. Oh, this is American retirement. And then the very next verse comes. But God said to him, fool, this very night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, I'm not sure that the American version of the dream of retirement is necessarily something that God is going to get on board with if it is focused on saving and hoarding all for myself. There's a couple keys in the passage that I think we need to see. One is the word all. There's a section in there, and I think it's in verse 19, where it says, he stored all of his grain, all of the things that he had. He built bigger barns in order to store all of it for himself. But there is this very stark contrast, and we'll get more into that as we move on, that kind of shows us the difference between having a worldly perspective on money and having a godly perspective on money. And so as we work through this passage, I just want to kind of pull out three things that this story teaches us and then there'll be kind of four ways that we can respond to that. So, the, the first thing that I want us to see in this passage is this Greed does not take a break, so neither should you. Greed does not take a break, so neither should you. And I'm gonna admit right from the start that I'm not real poignant at like writing out the points. I try to just like make them say what I want them to say. So, there's not gonna be like alliteration or beautiful poetry in them. They're just gonna kind of say some things. But if you're a note taker, This will be helpful to you, okay? Greed does not take a break, so neither should you. There's an interesting key in this passage in verse 15 when you look at kind of the Greek language. The Greek language is really, really cool. It's the original language that the New Testament was written in. And it's a little bit more technical than than modern English. It has a lot more parts of speech to it. It has a lot more tenses to it. And so by those tenses, you can really tell what an author was getting at. And one of the the tenses that, that authors really love is the present tense. Well, the, the present tense in modern English kind of leaves you thinking, do this thing. Do this thing, and then, you'll be, and then you're kind of done with it. But that's not what it is in the Greek. In the Greek, the present tense always means do this thing and continue doing it. They've got a different tense when they want you to say, hey, just go do that thing once, right? These are both in the present tense. So when he says, take care, be on guard, he is saying, take care and keep taking care. Be on guard and keep being on guard. We'll take care and be on guard from what? From covetousness, from greed. From the temptation to want to hoard and store up things. And what it's saying is like, listen, greed does not take a day off. The temptation to want more is not going to leave you alone because you said no to it once. So if it is something that is not going to take time off, we cannot take time off from pushing back against it and fighting against it. Take care, keep taking care. Be on guard and keep being on guard. And so what are we supposed to be on guard from? That idea of covetousness, and greed. It, it really carries with it the idea of hoarding things together. And, and you might be thinking, like, so what we're not supposed to like save any of our money as soon as we get it, we just kind of get rid of it, because I don't want to, I don't wanna do the wrong thing. But what about other places in scripture, right? What about the Proverbs? I mean, I, I told you, we just came out of teaching a financial class about financial principles. You'd probably be shocked if you went in there and I said, I want you to do something. I want you to give away all your money, spend it all, don't save any of it. We're not doing any of that stuff here. Well, no, that's not what we say. Well, why? Because the Bible has other principles that come into play as well. In fact, I'll read a few of them for you in Proverbs 13, 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. The plans of the diligent surely sorry, lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. So there is a balance in our life, and one of the things that Jesus is warning us about is like, listen, I understand that money is a necessary part of life. There is a balance between responsible saving for your needs and to care for yourself and your family and the people around you. But there is a balance between that, responsible saving, and greedily hoarding things up that aren't necessarily things that you need and actually God might have them, like has given them to you to be given to somebody else. And this is the tension that we're going to come back to again and again and again. The tension between what does it mean to be a responsible saver versus someone who is hoarding things away. So greed does not take a break, and so I can't either. I have to be weighing and testing myself constantly. Yeah, And I have to say from the start, I I feel conviction when I read this. I feel conviction myself. Greed does not take a break, neither should you. Second thing that we learn from this passage, money may provide temporary security and joy, but may also bring ultimate destruction. In the world we live in, money is really only thought as really a positive thing. It gets you the things you want. It pays for your house, it pays for your food. It, more of it is always good, right? But even in the non-Christian world, even in the non-Christian world, people who do not have a Christian worldview. There are tons of examples of like famous movie stars and people who have gotten a little bit older in their life and they go, you know, I wish, I I can't remember who it was. It might've been Jim Carrey who said, I wish everyone could be rich and famous so that they could realize that it does not deliver what they think it will deliver. These are principles that we begin to understand that money may provide temporary security and joy. And we see this in verse 19, right? In verse 19, he's saying, listen, I've got all this stuff. I've laid it up for myself. I can say to my soul, you have ample goods laid up. Many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry. And then the very next verse, we see the ultimate destruction that can be played by putting all of your faith and your trust and your love and your security and your joy in money instead of in God. See, what we're dealing with here is the, the, the comparison or the contrast between having an eternal perspective or an earthly perspective. The earthly perspective says at its core, this is all there is. I need to get as much as I can. I need to get as much enjoyment as I can. The eternal perspective says, no, I know there is something more, something far more valuable. In the church, we may not say, this is all there is. The earth is all that there is. My life here is all that I have. We may say, no, 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 I know there's an eternity in heaven. But we still long for things here on this earth. We still long for money. We still long for more things. Money in and of itself obviously is not a bad thing, but our relationship to it can be something that is very healthy or something that can be very destructive. The trick with keeping that eternal perspective, that concept that like, okay, I don't need to worry so much about money and resources because I know that in the future, God is my riches. That eternal perspective, I remember the first time that I encountered that and I remembered how like relieving it was. I was young, probably in high school, and I remember um, a pastor talking about it and it like clicked with me. <clears throat> and I was like, oh my gosh, like I, I was worried about what I was going to do in my life. I was worried about money. I was worried about college. I was worried about all these different things. And he, and he said this and it clicked and I go, I don't have to worry about any of this stuff. I don't have to worry about money. I don't have to worry about a job. I don't have to worry about any of those things because God, my hope in him is my everything. Like what he has is so much better than what I could ever gain here on this earth. Like it totally like shifted my whole perspective. It changed my whole world. And I thought, this is it. I'm done. I'm done with greed. I'm done with wanting things and all this stuff. And then I walked out in the parking lot and I saw a brand new Ford F-250 Powerstroke turbo diesel. And I realized this is going to take a lot longer than I thought. The trick with an eternal perspective is that the devil will want to trick you into thinking that because you understand what it means, that you're implementing it. He's going to want to trick you into thinking that because you could explain it to a friend, that it means that you must be living by it. That therefore your lack of contentment or your lack of joy or lack of security is not related to that because I already know that. That's not the trick with eternal perspective. You have to discipline yourself to implement it in your life on a daily basis. You have to fight you have to weed out those pieces of your heart that are longing for more stuff to fill the voids in your life, instead of allowing God to fill those voids. So, while yes, money is of some value in it, and it, and it brings some temporary security and joy, it can also cause ultimate destruction. In fact, in First Timothy six ten. I'll read this for you. It says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs, right? Or, or brought themselves into destruction. And I know that in the church we're really, really good. And it is right. It is true, right? That we go, oh, oh, oh. Money's not the evil thing, right? Remember? because we've heard that. That's a misquote. Money is, no, 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 money's not, the the love of money is the evil thing. But here's what I know I've done. I don't know if you've done this, if you've been around the church for a while. What I've done when I do that is I go, oh, no, 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 it's not money that's evil, it's the love of money. And I don't have to worry about that. I don't love money. (laughs) It's like, uh, no, you do. We take that, and again, one of those little schemes of the devil He says, oh, they misunderstood it. It's not actually money that's evil. It's the love of money. And then it's like we set it aside on the shelf. Instead of taking what it actually says and going, no, no, no." it says that on purpose because the issue obviously is not money. It's the love of money and it's in my heart. So do I take the time to evaluate? Do I take the time to to truly be um, someone who's introspective and says, no, 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 is that a part of my life? Is that a part of who I am? Like this love and this thirst for more and more and more that actually is placing a security on something that I should not be placing a security on. So yes, money can get you some temporary security and joy, but it may lead to ultimate destruction. And thirdly, you were made for eternity your money was not, unless. See that one is not very well written at all, but it was it was there to make you think. So we'll we'll get to the unless in, in a moment. All right, but let's 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 do these these things first. You were made for eternity. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes three chapter eleven makes it really really clear that. Every man, every man and woman has eternity written on their hearts. Like God has made people eternal beings. Now, not the body that you're in right now, but your soul, right? You are eternal. You were made for eternity. And that eternity is going to be in one of two places. But your money was not. This is a principle that we clearly understand, right? We clearly understand this because when someone says, hey, you can't take it with you, we know exactly what they mean. Right, We know exactly what they mean. They mean when you die, you can't take any of these things that you've saved up, any of these things that you've stored up, you can't take any of those things with you. See, the, the problem that this man had in the story was that his investments were in the wrong thing. The, the, that last verse says he was rich towards himself or rich in earthly terms instead of being rich in God or rich in, in heavenly terms. So his problem was he invested in something that wasn't going to last. We understand this principle really, really well. Like, if a person won the lottery and they took all of their winnings and they went out and they spent every penny they had on cowboy boots, you'd probably think to yourself, one, this person is a little bit odd unless you have a fascination with cowboy boots, which is totally fine. You know, but one, you'd think this guy is a little bit odd because he spent all of his money on cowboy boots. And then you'd realize, like, his family and his friends are probably saying to him, What are you doing? Like, how in the world did you just spend, waste all your money? We'd call that a total waste. Why do you waste all your money on cowboys? You needed to put that into something that would last. You needed to put that money into some investments. Why? We would be saying, essentially, you need to set yourself up for verse 19. You need to set yourself up for, like, getting to a place where you could be merry and, and, right? But the problem is, the problem is not with investing. The problem is with investing in the right things. Because even that level of investment is an investment that is not going to last. But is there something that the money that God gives me, is there something I could invest it in that could last? Well, we've already established this, right? People are eternal. People are eternal. If I have a bunch of money in a savings account and I die, that might bless someone who inherits it, right? But it's not coming with me to heaven, But I want you to think about this. The ways that I take care of others here on this earth with the money that God gives me, that does come with me. The ways that I give to others, like that does come with me when Jesus looks to me and says, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Like if you want things to be eternal, you have to invest them into the things that are eternal. So it's just food for thought that when we have an eternal perspective on things rather than an earthly perspective, it changes our relationship with money. It changes the way that we relate to money. And so what is the key to kind of like keeping that eternal perspective? H- how do we do this? Well, it's, it's awesome because the verse, the, verse 21, the end of this story kind of gives you the key. It says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. How do I keep an eternal perspective? I need to be rich towards God. It's an interesting phrase, rich towards God. I I looked up probably 15 or 20 different translations of this and they all, almost all of them used rich towards God. I thought that's kind of odd in the English language to use a phrase like that and I wondered if other translations might have translated it differently. But this rich towards God, like it's a very interesting phrase and it actually creates kind of a cool juxtaposition, which I use that word for my wife. She loves it when I use big words. I think she's more impressed then. But, but um, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but do you, do, do you have a favorite big word like that you like to use or you like to like slip it into any conversation that you, you know? Like juxtaposition is probably one of mine. Just say it, juxtaposition. It's a fun word. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, all it simply means is a cool comparison and contrast, right? Two things that are kind of like running like uh, against the grain of each other. Right? And so in this passage, in verse 15 and in verse 21, we have one of those that's really, really cool that kind of helps us root ourselves into an eternal perspective, okay? In verse 15, he says, let, let, let's read it, okay? In verse 15, he's warning them, take care, be on your guard. And he says this, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That literally can be translated, you do not exist in your possessions, You are not your possessions. You do not exist. You don't exist in your possessions. You don't exist for your possessions. You do not exist in your possessions. And this phrase in verse 21, rich towards God, could also be translated rich into God. Rich in God. You were not designed. You were not created. You were not made to exist in your possessions. You were made to exist in God. And it carries with it an idea of movement, rich into God. So so how do we do this? How, How do we be rich towards God? I'm going to give you four things. The first thing is this. Being rich towards God means giving him your life. This is the first one. This is the most important one. This is the one where everything else flows out of. Being rich toward God, rich towards God means giving him your whole life. And I just want you to know, this is what he asked for. This is what he came for. Jesus never comes to us, even though some churches will come to you and tell you that God wants your money. I've even heard people say God needs your money. No, he does not. God never comes to you and says, give me your money. Rather, God comes to us and says, give me your life. I don't want a piece of you. and, And let's be real. I don't want a piece of you that was already mine, your money. The reality is you belong to God too. But God says to you, I want your life. Give me your life and I will give you riches eternal. Come, come to me. I love that faint hand clap. He says, come to me. I will give you everything you desire, everything you want. He doesn't come and say, I need your money. He doesn't, it's all his anyway. He wants you. He wants you. And I want you to hear that this morning. Like, whether you are a Christian who has been a Christian for 25, 35, 45, 50 years, or you are someone who does not know Jesus and would say, I am not a Christian. He wants you. If you don't know him, and you're here and you're thinking, I don't think God would ever want me, the, the mistakes that I've made in my life, the things that I've done, the, I, I don't even know anything about this. He wants you. He wants a relationship with you, and what he wants to give you is something that is so much more satisfying than anything that this world can offer you. He wants you. And if you're a Christian here this morning, don't forget, I, I, I looked at this, and I did what maybe some of you would have done. When you hear the point or the, the phrase, he wants you, you think to yourself, boy, I hope Someone in the room who maybe doesn't know that Jesus wants them, I hope they hear it. And maybe someone will become a Christian today. That's awesome, and I hope that happens. But if you are a Christian in this room and you've been that way a long time, don't forget that he still wants you too. And what I mean when I say that is he wants a relationship with you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to talk with you. He's not a slick salesman who comes in and says, hey, I want you, and you go, well, I want you too. And he goes, cool, I got you on the team. Now I'm on to the next person. That is not what Jesus does. That is not what, that's not who God is. When was the last time you spent time with him? When was the last time you knew that he wanted you, he wants a relationship with you? Being rich towards God means giving him your life and everything else flows out of that. Secondly, being rich towards God means being a giver like he is. Being rich towards God means being a giver like he is. You don't give to the church because the church needs your money or because God needs your money. You give to the church and you give to so many other things because we are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God and God is a giver. Being rich towards God, allowing his life to flow through my life means that I become a giver. Have you ever given like a a pretty, a, a big gift to someone and has it filled you with joy? People talk about the fact, oh, it's so much greater to give than receive. And I think some people kind of snicker and go, yeah, no, it's not. But what they're pointing to is that there's something that goes on inside a person when you give. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It is something inside you resonating with the image of God because you were made in the image of God. It resonates with who you're supposed to truly be. And we can push back against it. We can deny it. We can say we don't want it. But it's who we were made to be. So being rich towards God means being a giver like he is. As I thought about this point and I was thinking about this church, one, I was overwhelmingly convicted. Because I know so many times in my life, God is so much more of a giver than I will ever be. And there are so many times in my life where I'm convicted of my own greed, my own covetousness, and I'm not being a giver like God is. The other feeling that I felt and almost brought to the point of tears was I thought back over the last 20 years plus of being involved in this church and the amazing displays of generosity I've seen from this community of people. I, I, I mean, I, just story after story just kept flowing through my mind. And in a place where like You know, as a preacher, you might think, yeah, bring it, you know, pound the pulpit. You're not giving enough, and you need to give, and and people are going to feel this. I felt overwhelmingly blessed by this place. I felt overwhelmingly blessed by the fact that I can remember years and years ago, a group of people getting together and raising money to provide a brand new handicapped van for someone in our ministry who was handicapped. I think back to dozens of cars that have been gifted to the church over the years and given to people who are in need. Just two weeks ago before Christmas, someone reached out and emailed and they said, I've got this car and I'm not talking about a 1972 Ford Pinto. Like this was a nice car and I just want to give it to somebody. Jen and I have been given things through this church. One of the coolest trips that we took when we were, when we were young and had zero money <laughs> was a trip to Lake Tahoe and it was completely paid for by somebody from this church. This church, this place, has been a bastion of generosity. And so I want to say two things about that. One, if that's you, you're one of the generous ones, one of those ones in your home group who's, who's drumming everybody up to, to raise thousands of dollars to pay for someone's medical expenses that none of us would even hear about, right? You need to double down and keep it up. You are image-bearing God. And you're image-bearing God to those people around you and to us. If you're someone in this room who's not generous and maybe this is a hard topic for you, here's what I would encourage you. Get in the game. Start somewhere. Start small. Be a giver like God is. There is such blessing in it. And to those to whom God has given much, much is expected. You're not Spider-Man. I thought that would be funnier. (laughs) I didn't plan that at all, but I... You guys, are, you guys are locked in. That's what I'm saying. You are, you're So locked in, like, you know? So anyway, if, if God has given you a lot, th- just think about it. Like, he, expe- he expects us to be givers like he is. Okay, that's the second one. Third, being rich towards God means consistent movement towards him. This should make sense. The whole phrase, rich towards God, means being rich into God. It has the, the uh, idea of movement. And so being rich towards God mean, means a consistent movement towards God. It means I am consistently orienting my life not towards like wealth, prosperity, riches, all the things that the world dreams of. I'm consistently orienting myself towards God. Now, those are not always opposite directions. I know people who are very consistently oriented towards God and God blesses them with tons of wealth. That's not the point. The point is, where's my hope? Where's my security? Where am I turned towards? And I just wrote down a few questions of like, why would I want to be consistently moving towards God in order to be rich in God? And here's a few questions that I ask myself. How will I gain the riches of his comfort and security if I don't share my heart with him? How will I gain his riches instead of the riches of the world if I don't share my heart with him? How will I see the needs that I could be meeting if I am not listening to him? And how will I be corrected when I need to be, if I am not brutally honest with Him, He already knows my heart. He already knows your heart. As I've gotten older and become more acquainted with the depth of the sin in my heart, some of the most meaningful times in prayer and in my relationship with Christ have been those moments where I am most vulnerable, those moments where I am most honest. I'm angry. I'm bitter, I'm frustrated, and I give those things to God, and they are ugly, and they're dark. And the thing that amazes me is that for years of my life, like when I was a much younger Christian, for years of my life, like those were the kind of things that I hid from God. You don't want to hear about that stuff. You don't, you don't want me to talk to you about that stuff. But when I've come to a place where I go, no, no, no. I want you to search my heart and I want you to find those things in me. And I want you to root those things out. When I've moved towards God in that way, what I've been met with is such kindness and grace. What I've been met with is what scripture calls the gentle rebuke. Where you walk away feeling so much better that you've been corrected. Where you walk away and you go, God, I gave you those feelings. You told me how inappropriate and how wrong they were, and then you told me that you loved me. Richness in God. That's riches in God. And he gives that to us when we move towards him. And lastly, being rich towards God, when he gives you that kind of stuff, being rich towards God is desiring him above all else. Desiring him above all. Charles Spurgeon, um, an eighteen hundreds uh, famous 1800s preacher, said that the one way that you know that Jesus is precious to you is that nothing else is. Think about that. The one way you know that Jesus is precious to you is that nothing else is. And obviously he doesn't mean that you know, we're supposed to despise the things that the Bible calls us to love and only have Jesus as something that is precious. What he's saying is much like what Scripture says. When Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your mother, your father, your brother. He's not actually saying that you're supposed to hate those people. What he's saying is, in comparison to the place that I have in your heart. In comparison to the place that I have in your heart. And so that's exactly what Spurgeon is saying. He's saying that the preciousness that we have for Christ should be in a category all of its own. And when it is, That relationship is so sweet. It is so good. And it naturally, I think, just moves us into our time of communion this morning. And so as we go there, I'll ask the band to come up. And I just want to say this. Like, my desire for Jesus should be in a category all of its own. And and here's why. I I was thinking about some of these concepts that we went over today and kind of the the way that, that we can become fools we can become fools thinking that, that things are worth a lot that aren't worth a lot and acting like things that are worth everything aren't worth that much. The, the reason that I want to desire and do desire Christ more than anything else is because of the, the paradoxical nature of God. Every other religion in the world says store up your good deeds and bring them to God. And hopefully there'll be enough and he will accept you. The world says store up your money. But God says when your barns are full, you actually have nothing. If I come to God and I present him with what I have, it's nothing. But if I come to him with nothing, he fills me. If I come to God and I say I have nothing, I have nothing that could earn your favor, I have nothing that could earn your salvation, I am weak, I am broken, then God will say come in, I have all that you need. He wants us. And this is what we remember each week as we celebrate communion together. There's a small cup on your chair with wafer and juice and you can begin to open that. It represents the body and the blood of Christ. God's ultimate expression of giving to us. The fact is that we're hopeless in our sin. We're not like God. We chase money. We chase other things. We don't measure up. But then those two incredible words in scripture, but God. He sees us. He loves us. He sent His only Son to die for us. And maybe this morning, in, in, in order to kind of maybe not lose the moment that the spirit, be, um, the spirit might be convicting or moving in your heart, I want you to think about those things that like, you have loved more than you've loved Christ. The places where you've chased money or wealth or security and other things instead of Jesus. And I want you to think about the fact that in the midst of that pursuit of something else, he's still pursuing you. He wants you. He brings us back. He forgives. He's kind. He loves. Consider the body of Christ broken on the cross and that body representing the life of Christ lived in perfection and given to us as our own righteousness before God. And consider his blood spilt as payment for our sin, cleansing us before God. If these are the truths that you cling to this morning, then I just, I'd invite you to take a moment and consider those things and, and take communion. But if by your own admission, you're not sure that that's where you're at with Jesus, you're not sure that, that he is who you ultimately trust in, then I would tell you there's no need to pretend. And the Bible actually gives a warning against pretending. What we would ask you to do in in, in this moment is to, to consider and ponder like why? Why are there things in my life that I want more than Christ? When he wants me, when he's calling, and maybe today would be the day of salvation for you. Maybe the day, today would be the day that you respond to his desire for you. For all of us, I just ask this question: what do you desire most? Can we in honesty say, Jesus, Jesus, I want you more than anything, just you? Let me pray for us, and then you can take communion, and we'll continue in worship. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, I'm, I'm humbled by it every time I read it, and God, for, um, for some reason, and I, I suppose it makes sense, I'm humbled even more every time you allow me to share it with others. God, when I share it with others, it seems to come in technicolor back to me <laughs> that I am unworthy, not just of your love, but I'm unworthy of even this, like, opportunity. And, um, and God, your kindness, your love, it just shines through like crazy. God, I pray that, that we, as a people this morning, would see you for who you are and have such an intense desire for you. God, that it would change who we are, that it would change the way we view the world. It would turn an earthly perspective into an eternal perspective and give us the discipline to keep that eternal perspective. God, we love you, and we pray all this in your name. Amen.